were to use one word to describe the guts to the whole letter of the Ephesians, it would be the word purpose. So much of this letter to the Ephesians is about finding our identity. It's coming to the understanding of who are we? What's our place in the whole scheme of God? What's my place in the church? Where do we fit with Jesus Christ? And what is our overall purpose? Um, Sometimes advertisers um, use unbelievable before and after pictures, eh? Hey? You, you've seen those unbelievable before and after pictures, you know, where, where a 40 pound weakling buys the latest ab buster and six weeks later he's a 98 kilo runner up for Mr. Universe. Um, yeah. Or, or, or a buck tooth flabby 60 year old grandmother buys the latest Chong Yao moose extract powder, sprinkles it onto her favourite snacks and and within a few weeks she's transformed into um, a 23-year-old honey. You know, we, we, we've all seen these unbelievable before and after photos. Um, but we don't believe them, do we? No, no. Um, well, here in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul gives us a little glimpse of who we are and he does it by giving us a before and after picture. And this is a very honest picture um, because with Christ there's a very real difference between the before and the after. Before Christ is very different to after Christ coming into our lives. The difference is extraordinary. With Christianity we have no hope of understanding our purpose or finding out who we are unless we first look back and remember what we have been. It's only in the light of what we've been that we can begin to grasp the enormity of the change that Christ has brought in us. You see, a lot of us want to ask the question, who am I? What's my purpose? And that's a very self-centred question, isn't it? But when we compare the before picture with the after picture, it becomes a very Christ-centred matter because we've got the before We've got the after, but Christ is right there in the centre of the change. So, let's have a look at these before and after pictures. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you that at one time, relationship with God was strictly reserved for the people of Israel, for God's chosen people. And the relationship was very much defined by the law. Right? Now, when we talk about the law, it, it began with the Ten Commandments, but it's even more than that. The, the book of the law was really the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and in here we find the law of God. And the purpose of the law was really to make an unclean people, to give them a safe place to come into the presence of God. Right? Because if, you come, if you're full of sin and you come into the presence of God, you die. And so, so much of the law is God saying, well, this is the way you shall live. And depending on how close you got to God, if you're the high priest, then you had to go through all of this ritual cleansing process. So, unless someone was a Jew and was keeping the law, it was hopeless. And Paul is brutally honest about this. When he paints the before picture for us, he says this, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty cutting description, isn't it? Um, sounds like he's, yeah, if somebody said that to you, like it'd be like giving you a real dressing down. He's basically saying, before Christ, we were God-forsaken and good for nothing. We're excluded. Now, no matter how highly anyone might think of themselves, without God, we're God-forsaken and good for nothing. Now, that, that just flies in the face, to, face of most of today's humanistic teaching, which we also find in much of the church, where it's all about trying to build up somebody's self-esteem. Uh, Paul didn't do such a good job of that, did he? Building up somebody's self-esteem. If only we could see ourselves as we really are. Don't you think that would do away with all the problems that we have with pride? When we have our, the pride, we think of ourselves and think of ourselves as better than we are. But when we see ourselves as Paul lays it down, without Christ, this is how you were, out goes any notions of pride. I was God forsaken. I was good for nothing. I was a stranger. I was separated from Christ. I was alienated from God's promise. I was without hope and without God in the world. That's the before picture. What a depressing state of affairs, eh? But something's changed. At the cross, everything changes. And when I come to the cross, that's when the change is activated in me. And that's when the after picture kicks in. It reveals who we are now. Now in Christ, he says, alright, so it's no longer self-centred, he's centering it in Christ. Now in Christ, we who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now that, that is an incredible difference. Without Christ we would still be God forsaken. Without Christ there would still be no hope. Without Christ there would still be no chance at all of, of us having any kind of relationship with God. But with Christ all of that changes. And it's not just having pleasant thoughts about Christ and it's not just because Christ came and was a good teacher and did all the rest of it. It's centred on the blood of Christ. Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Let's never forget that. To our shame, sometimes we do forget just just how much we have to be thankful for. If you ever find yourself losing your joy in Christ, and it happens to all of us, it happens to all of us at times when we start to lose our joy in Christ, it just doesn't seem, it it all becomes very ho-hum. If you ever find yourself in that place, look back and remember what you were. You were God forsaken. You were without hope. And then remember the change that comes in Christ at the cross and what it cost. That should bring back your joy. That should bring back your reason to give praise to God. So what is this change in status that happens that comes in Christ. Well, the key word here is the word peace. I remember when we were in Brisbane, um, 
I used to ride my push bike places. Right? I, I, it, um, that's why I would commute if I was just going somewhere on my own. And um, I spent a lot of time under bridges, not, not because that's where we had to sleep because we're poor theology students, but I spent a lot of time under bridges because the bike paths follow the creeks. And so when you're going down a creek, you have to go under the bridge with the, with the yeah, that all the traffic goes over. Anyway, there was a poster that I saw under, under a bridge once where I just read it and went, well, that's stupid. That's, that's just stupid. It was a socialist poster, so I shouldn't have been surprised that it was stupid. But, the, but it said on it, fight for peace. And I thought, really? <laughs> fight for peace. Yeah, okay, good one. Good one, fellas. Um, but peace is something that nearly everybody longs for, hey? Everybody longs for peace. We long for peace in our families. We long for peace in our lives. We long for peace in the world. We long for, for peace in our workplaces. And so we find here something that's very tantalising. Christ is our peace. Now usually we think of Jesus Christ as making peace or proclaiming peace. But here, he is peace personified. Jesus Christ is our peace. What does it mean? Well, the only peace that will last comes through the Prince of Peace, which is one of the names for Christ. Now, the US or, or Egypt may try and broker a deal between Hamas and, and Israel, uh, but how long does it last? I think the last one I heard about lasted about six hours. <laughs> Pretty, pretty feeble attempt, really. There will be no lasting peace in Palestine until every knee bows before the Prince of Peace. If a married couple who are bitter with each other come to me for advice, well, I can give them a few pointers on, and a few tools so that they can communicate better. I can, I could say to them, oh, well, maybe you need to just go away and have a weekend just together yourselves and reconnect with each other. And, and that might be all very good and nice for about five minutes. But that's not going to bring any lasting peace to their marriage, is it? To bring peace requires a change of heart. And the only one who's in the business of changing hearts is the Lord our God. It's only when husband and wife both yield themselves to Christ that any kind of peace is going to have any chance of getting a go on in their marriage. Christ is the central figure through whom reconciliation occurs. And it occurs in two directions. It occurs vertically and it occurs horizontally. It occurs horizontally within the church, reconciling us to one another. And it occurs vertically, reconciling us to God. And it's only through Christ that we are reconciled to God and it's only through Christ that we are reconciled to each other. And so Jesus Christ is our peace. If we have any peace at all, it's only because of Christ. This was his purpose. This is why Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, to make peace between each other and to make peace between us and God. And so in the church, the age-old walls and barriers between each other are smashed to pieces and the age-old wall between humanity and God himself is obliterated. It means that to be reconciled to each other, 
We have to be reconciled to God. And this all comes through Christ. Following World War II, the victors of Europe divided up their territories. Do you remember that, John? (laughs) Just about. In 1949, the city of Berlin, the capital of Germany, was divided into two. It was divided actually up into four different zones, the French, the British, the American and the Soviet zones. West Berlin became part of the American and and French and British zones, um, became West Germany. And East Berlin became part of the Soviet-backed communist Germany. And thus began the era of the Iron Curtain and the 46 years of the Cold War. Although going by recent activity in the last couple of, couple of weeks you sort of wonder whether maybe the Cold War's still got a bit of life left in it yet with what's going on in the Ukraine. But some of you younger ones are probably blissfully unaware uh, of what the Iron Curtain was and what it meant. Overnight, do you have any idea? Big wall. Big wall, yep. Overnight, the city was split down the middle. The country was split down the middle. The country of Germany. And it became two different countries. And not only that, these two different countries were about as different as what they could ever possibly be. They had completely different political and ideological values. Communism versus capitalism. And families on one side were instantly cut off from families on the other side of the city. So the, the way that it could be like, like, Bibles could be printed in West Germany, whereas they were burned in East Germany. Christians had the freedom to preach in the West, but if you were, tried to preach in the East, you were sent to a re-education camp um, and probably never heard from ever again. People used to risk death to try and cross the border from east to west and hundreds if not thousands of people died attempting exactly that. They'd risk the landmines, the barbed wire, the electrified fences, the machine gun posts to just try and cross the border to get a better life in the west. On the 13th of August 1961, construction of the Berlin Wall began. Those on the east were confined to the east. The Berlin Wall is what symbolised the strength and and the impenetrable barrier of the Iron Curtain. I remember as a boy hearing stories of of brave missionaries who tried to smuggle Bible, and they did, smuggle Bibles from from the west to the east to see that um, believers, secret believers um, in the east got to read the Bible. It was a dividing wall that cut off the east from the west. And Paul here describes to us a dividing wall which cuts us off from God. It was a dividing wall that cuts us off from God's chosen people. Before Christ there was God and his chosen people and anyone who wasn't a Jew, basically most of us, had absolutely no chance. We were cut off. We were just as cut off by that barrier as what East Berlin was cut off by the barrier of the wall. And it might surprise you what that barrier actually was. The barrier that cut us off from God was the law. 
the unachievable law was the barrier. Thursday night, um, I've, I've been at a conference in, in Sydney, Oxygen Conference, and for the first time I, I, I flew from Moree. Uh, great way to get to Sydney. Yep, much, much quicker and much less driving. It was fantastic. But coming home Thursday night on a Dash 8, uh, I got talking to the lady who was next to me. And we talked and talked and talked and then we got on to things of God. And we talked about the Ten Commandments. And she told us how, told me how, yeah, that, that's something that they feel is important for them to instill the moral values of the Ten Commandments into their little daughter. And I said, to her, yeah, yeah, that is really good. But you know, with the Ten Commandments, what's the pass mark? I have trouble keeping the Ten Commandments, so what's the pass mark? If I, if I can happen to keep five out of ten, is that okay? Is it all right if, if, if I murder somebody as long as I don't commit adultery? You know, like I've just, or maybe seven out of ten might be the pass. What, what is the pass mark for the Ten Commandments? You know, in James chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us what the pass mark is. It says, if you're really good at keeping the whole law, but just mess up once. You've just failed. The pass mark's 100%. And none of us can do it. Because of sin, I can't keep the whole law. Because of sin, I am as cut off from God as what East Berlin was cut off from West Berlin. Can anyone remember the date, the 9th of November 1989? No, you you didn't even have to think about that, did you, Ben? I couldn't remember the date. I had to look it up. That was the date the Berlin Wall fell. Does anyone remember that date now? A few older ones do. I do. If you saw those images on the television, you'll probably never forget them. A solid, defining barrier wall dividing east from west, being smashed to pieces with sledgehammers, fists, clawing fingers. I know people, relatives who have got a little piece of it sitting on the mantelpiece at home. A little piece of history. A hundred thousand people gathered in the city square chanting four words. The wall is gone. The wall is gone. The wall is gone. And in Christ, guess what? The wall's gone. In the church, God bridges age-old differences and nothing is too hard for him. If God can reconcile us to him, which he has, he can certainly reconcile us to each other. In the church, he brings all things together in unity in Christ and so the stocky can be reconciled to the sodbuster. Is that doable? Yep. The townie can be reconciled to the bushy. The black man can be reconciled to the white. The criminal to the victim. The Hatfield to the McCoy. The Montague to the Caplet. In his church, a unity happens. Goodness, we, we, we could even, we can even love a Volvo driver. <laughs> All things are brought together. And we're all one in Christ. The Palestinian and the Israeli. The Jew and the German. Even in some of the biggest barriers, property, property committee and the youth group. Through Christ, 
We all have access to the Father by the one Spirit. He has destroyed the barrier. He has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. This was his purpose. Now, if hostility still exists in the church, it's because we are working against the purposes of God. Christ's purpose was to destroy anything that keeps us apart. So our before picture is without God, without hope and with hostility towards one another. And when we look back, that is how we were. But Ephesians is about finding our identity now. We now know who we are because we look forward and we see the after picture. Now that Christ has reconciled us, we are no longer excluded. Far from being foreigners, we are now fellow citizens with God's people. How many of you lot have have gained citizenship to Australia? Put your hand up if if you're now citizens of... If you were not at one time but are now a citizen... What does your citizenship mean to you, Narina? I, um, I live in Australia, that's basically what it says. It means you live... I'm on the culture of Australia. Yeah, yep, yep. What it means is that although you are a newcomer, you belong. It means that although you're a newcomer, this is your home. It means that although you're a newcomer, you have the privileged rights of a citizen. And it doesn't matter whether you've been a citizen of Australia for for 50 years or whether you've been a citizen of Australia for 50 minutes, your rights and privileges are exactly the same as each other. And so we who were far off are now fellow citizens with God's people. We are members of his household. And we are being built together in one unit. I told you I was away at this Oxygen Conference this this week and uh, it was a place for pastors and church leaders to breathe deep. Um, We had some really good speakers there and and they gave a lot of good messages on God's word. It was great. Now, this conference was held in the old Redfern Railway workshops. Um, They've been done up into a conference centre enormous sheds, enormous machinery. I was riding my helmet, I loved it. Occasionally, here's a little confession, occasionally I'd sort of drift off. Um, I, know, I know that none of you ever do that in church, but, but, like, but like we were getting like about eight sermons and each one of them were about an hour and a half long, and that's each day. And um, every now and then I'd drift off and I'd just start looking at the, at the construction of this massive shed. And it, it was just amazing. And I, it didn't take me long to notice this was no kid shed. Like, this isn't something that you got your tech screw gun and just screwed together and thought about later on what you're going to put inside of the thing. This thing was designed from the ground up. It was purpose built for fixing locomotives. Okay? And what I realised is it all started at the foundations. The, the foundations were designed like, had this enormous press here. That thing is a monster, like a man had come to about there. And Enormous press and it's all built into the foundations. The foundations are designed for it. And then you come to the shed itself and and this is just one bay. There's 2,000 people here, by the way. 
So you can, that might give you some idea of how big the thing is. That doorway down the end is big enough for a locomotive to come in. And what I real and, and there's bay after bay after bay, but it's all one shed. And all of the foundations are designed and all of these pillars, they don't only support all of the roof structure, but there's a huge web truss through there and this is all one enormous gantry system which this gantry crane all goes on. The whole thing was designed from the ground up. There was no afterthought with this thing. So this was all built with no afterthoughts. It was designed from the ground up. And we are built into a building for God. And there's no afterthought. This for me was just a brilliant example of what Paul is talking about here. Of how Christ builds his church. There's no afterthoughts. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Basically that, that means, you know what the apostles and prophets did? That they revealed God to us. So we're, we're built on the truth about God that we find as we read the apostles and read the prophets. Christ himself is the chief cornerstone of the building and in him all of the building is fitted and framed together in one integral unit. Christ is integral to the building. What we believe is integral to the building. And we're all built together in Christ for God's purposes, rising to become one completed building in which God lives by his spirit. Now this is who we are. Each one of us are God's children. And each one of us are essential for God's purposes. You might think of yourself and go, well, I just go along to church and I just believe, and so on and so forth, but... You have to come to the understanding that as part of God's church, you are integral to his building. If any one of those components of that building was removed or taken away, there's something missing and something's going to collapse. The roof's going to fall or the, or the crane's going to smash. You know, in this passage, I find one of the most amazing concepts. Each of us are essential We're essential elements of the building. Now why should that amaze me? Well it amazes me because God didn't just choose us for our sake. You know we sort of think of salvation usually in terms of what it does for me. Okay I'm saved, I'm I'm saved for the afterlife. But we are saved for him. We're saved for God. And we're saved for the rest of the church. We're saved for God's purposes. We're saved for the work that we will do. We're saved because in us God chooses to live. And we're all built together to become this dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now I find that incredible. And it hasn't finished. His work is continuing. God lives in an imperfect building. You get this, don't you? Is church perfect? Just look around you. <laughs> hey? And then look in the mirror. Uh-oh. The church is an incomplete and imperfect building and yet God chooses to live in it. 
You ever tried living in a house while it's still getting built or while it's having major renovations done? Yes. Yeah, and what's that like? Hey? A big dust and a mess. Yep. It's not easy. The year before the wool industry went bust, Dad and I built a brand new shearing shed. Pretty good timing, eh? We didn't even get it finished before the floor price was removed and, and sheep, you could buy a thousand sheep for a dollar. It, it, it broke my dad's heart. He said, oh, that big white elephant we, 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 we built. But it was a major project. Like we planned and plotted it and, and um, it became the major project for the year. If we, weren't, if we didn't have tractor work to do or sheep work to do or whatever, every other moment was building this shearing shed. And we used it before we finished it. Um, many of the floor planks were unnailed. The mesh fence was just hung up by wire loosely. Uh, there were gaps, the walls weren't complete, the floors were unsanded and splintery. It was tough. You know what unsanded timber's like, don't you? It's very much like Velcro. So imagine working with wool in a Velcro shed. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, now, we could have stayed in our old shed for one more year. We, we, could, have, we could have fixed the bearer that, that broke last time a bale of wool was dropped out of the press. We could have patched a few holes in the floor and, and, um, got, and used the thing again for, for one more year. But there was a very good reason why we used the new shed. Does anyone want to guess why? You want it. Exactly! I didn't think anyone would ever get that. <laughs> because we wanted to. No other reason. We just wanted to. There it was. It was sort of still half built, but hey, let's use it. And, and we wanted to, and we did. And that's what God is like with us. The church is imperfect. We've got our splinters. We've got our gaps. We're rough around the edges. We rub each other the wrong way. We hurt one another. And sometimes I think we're more trouble than what we're worth. But you know what? God chooses to live in us. And you know why? Because he wants to. That's all. Just He has a right to choose where he lives and he says, I'll live in you lot. He lives in us and he builds us and he renovates us as he goes. So we find our identity in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. But your identity is not an individual identity. It's not all about you. Your identity is not an individual identity. This is a building that God is building. Our identity is part of the whole building. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. And us together are God's work. And so we may ask the question, who am I? What's my purpose? But that's the wrong question. It's a very self-centred question. The correct question is, who are we? What is our purpose together? Because your purpose and identity is tied to Christ, but not only to Christ. Your purpose and identity is tied to your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. 
That's the way God's designed it and that's the way that Christ is our peace. Not just vertically but also horizontally. He is our peace between one another. We are God's building, that's our purpose and over the next few weeks in Ephesians we're going to be discovering more about how to live out that purpose. Right, so Paul sort of nails down, first of all, where we've been, what we are now. And then he'll go on in the rest of Ephesians to teach us how to live out that purpose that God has for us. Together in unity as the dwelling place of God.